Tonight we want to study John chapter 7, verses 14 to 52. We've already covered, number one, the background to the Feast of Tabernacles, John 7, 1 to 9. And secondly, the division of opinion about Jesus, John chapter 7, verses 10 to 13. Now we come to the dialogue. John chapter 7, verses 14 to 36. And the three groups of people that, uh, that enter into this dialogue. John chapter 7, verse 14 is the first one. Now, at about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled. So the first one are the Jews. Second one is found in John chapter 7, verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to keep? to kill. So the second group are the Jerusalemites, the citizens of Jerusalem. Then we come to a third group in John chapter 7, verse 32, and that's the Pharisees. Now, in addition to those three groups, the Jews and the Jerusalemites and the Pharisees, there are two other groups that pop up. One of them is the multitude, or called the people. That's found down in verse 20. What is the second word in your Bible in verse 20? That's the multitude, the people. And then there's one other group, and that's in the middle of verse 32. The Pharisees heard the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests. So I have the chief priests. Here are five groups of people then. The Jews, the Jerusalemites, the Pharisees, the multitude, the chief priests. Now, what's the difference? Well, the Jews is a technical term for the leadership of Israel. The Jews is a term that the New Testament uses, and especially the Gospel of John, for the leadership, the religious leadership of the people. That would almost be the equivalent of the Sanhedrin. Number two, the Jerusalemites were the citizens, the Jewish citizens of Jerusalem. They would be inclined toward the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the chief priests. Number three are the people or the multitude. Those are Jews from outside the city of Jerusalem. And they are not as religiously alert as are the Jerusalemites. Number four, they're the Pharisees, and you know what the Pharisees are. And then number five, they're the chief priests. Verse 32. The chief priests. Now, you're going to say, well, I thought there was only one chief priest. Well, that's correct. But by, by, um, by New Testament days, the office of chief priest was an office that was bought and sold. The Romans sold it to the highest bidder. A man could hold, the, could hold the office of chief priest for two years, three years, and become a millionaire. He controlled what were called the bazaars of Annas. And he made thousands of dollars at Passover season. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at Passover season, two turtle doves that normally sold for eight pence, or eight pennies, sold for $3.95. And, 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 and that uh, at, uh, when he wrote, uh, he, he described one Passover about 55 A.D., and he said at that Passover there was about 200 and 50,000 lambs and bullocks slain. Now, the lambs and bullocks were, were for the elite Jewish people to offer. So a turtle does probably a half a million. 
The man that sold those, because they couldn't put them on a ship or they couldn't carry them on the arm, the men that sold them were the people who controlled the bazaars of Annas. And that was controlled by the chief priests. Now, Annas had been the chief priest from about uh, 12 to 15 A.D. And then he was put out of the office by the Romans. So he had five sons. Put in son number one. He, his first son bought the office from the Romans. And then he was put out. The second son, the third son, the fourth son, and the fifth son. And in 26 A.D., he ran out of sons. So in 26 A.D., his son-in-law, Caiaphas, purchased the office. And that's why we have both Annas and Caiaphas at the trial of Jesus. Annas was the nominal chief priest. He had the title. Uh, Caiaphas had the title. But Annas, his father-in-law, was really the power behind the throne. So uh, when the gospel, of, when the events of Jesus' life took place, there were probably five, six, seven, eight or nine chief priests living. There were at least six of them living. And then sometimes the term chief priest also included the male members of the family of the chief priest. So this was a title that referred to several people, the chief priest, not simply one. Now here, and they're primarily members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of about 72 Jews, and it was the legal ruling body of, uh, of Israel. And the Romans gave the Sanhedrin a whole lot of latitude to try people and to punish them, except for one crime, and that was a capital offense. That's why Annas and Caiaphas and Sanhedrin had to take Jesus to Pilate. They could try a man for a capital offense and find him guilty, but they couldn't execute him. The Romans reserved the right to do that. So when we come into the study of the Gospel of John, we're going to find uh, uh, these men referred to, these people, the Jerusalemites, the people, the multitude, the Pharisees, the chief priests, uh, and we need to get a handle on these to understand it. We need to understand clearly that when John uses the term the Jews, he's not referring to all the Jews. He's referring more particularly to the Jewish leadership. Now, having said that, here is this dialogue in John chapter 7, 14 to 36. Here's this dialogue. And there are different groups that raise questions. And there are three objections that they're going to bring against Jesus. First of all, number one, John 7, 15, is his teaching. John 7, 15. And the Jews marvel, saying, how knows this man letters have he never learned? That's their first objection. They object to his teaching. Second objection is found down in chapter 7, verse 27. They object to his origin. John 7, 27. Nevertheless, we know this man, Jesus, from where he is. We know here he comes from. But when Christ comes, the Messiah comes, no man knows from where he is. So obviously, this man, Jesus, can't be the Christ. We know where he comes from, this man, Jesus, but we won't know where the Messiah comes from, so obviously this man, Jesus, can't be the Christ. So they object to his origin. Number three, they object to his destiny, to where he's going. Look at verse 32 and 33. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers 
to take Jesus. Then Jesus said to the officers, Yet a little while I'm with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am there you cannot come. And we uh, read the remaining verses, we'll find that they object to the destiny of Jesus. So here are three issues. What are those three issues? First issue is the issue about his what? Teaching. Second issue is the issue about his origin, where he comes from. The third issue is the issue about his destiny, where he's going. That's all in this dialogue, John chapter 7, verses 14 to 36. John 7, 14 to 24, his teaching. John 7, 25 to 31, his origin. John 7, 32 to 36, his destiny. Now let's look at the first one, his teaching. John 7, 14 to 24. And I have prepared a fairly careful outline of this, so uh, I won't need to really take a lot of time in explaining this. John 7, verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. He goes up the middle of the feast from uh, Galilee up to Jerusalem or south to Jerusalem and finds his way to the temple where the people would be congregated hundreds and thousands of them at the temple. And he teaches. And the word taught is in the imperfect tense. And he was teaching. Now, what do you think he was teaching about? Well, the things that we find in John 5 and John 6. He was teaching about his claims, what he claimed to be. The bread of life come down from heaven. And he taught about um, uh, his person. And about his relationship, his unique relationship to his father. And about the witnesses to him. He taught in the temple probably all those things that we read about in John chapter 5 and 6. He focused especially on who he is, his person, and his unique relationship to the father. And by the imperfect tense, it indicates that he spent a good deal of time on that day teaching. He was teaching. Now... The Jews objected to that. Verse 16. And the Jews marveled, saying, uh, How knows this man letters, having never learned? There's an objection. How knows this man letters, uh, having never learned? Or to put it in terms that we would understand, how can this man teach since he was not taught by us in the rabbinical school? What right does this man have to teach so dogmatically when he never attended any of the rabbinical schools, sat at any of the feet of the rabbis, and therefore doesn't have our stamp of approval? How can this man teach unless he's taught by us? That's what uh, they meant by knoweth letters and never learned. How, uh, how knows this man letters? How does this man have this knowledge? Having never learned, that is, having never learned at the rabbinical schools. Now, see, the point here is that there are only two alternatives. First alternative is that he was uh, taught by us, or the second alternative is that he self-taught. Obviously, he wasn't taught by us. He wasn't a contemporary of any of us in the rabbinical schools. He wasn't taught by us. So, therefore, he was self-taught and self-sent. And if he was self-sent and self-taught, 
that he couldn't teach truth. The only way he could teach truth was to be taught by us at the rabbinical school. He wasn't taught by us at the rabbinical school. Therefore, he can't teach truth. What he's teaching is error and heresy. That was their challenge, and that was their objection. Now, how is Jesus going to answer that objection? Well, his answer is found in verses 16 to 24. And, uh, we'll, and it's an excellent answer. We'll have to find the steps that he takes. He answers their objection, and then in verses 20 to 23, he gets to the root of the real problem, the reason they objected. First thing he does, he corrects them. There are not two alternatives. There are three, verse 16. Not two alternatives, but three. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, my teaching, is not mine, but whose? His that sent me. There are not only two alternatives, there are three. First alternative, taught in the rabbinical school. Second alternative, self-taught. What's the third alternative? Taught by God himself. You overlook that one, said Jesus. And he's making a claim here in verse 16. No, I didn't uh, attend the rabbinical schools. I didn't get my Ph.D. down at the rabbinical school. I didn't sit at the feet of Gamaliel. I sat at the feet of someone who is infallible, who never made any mistakes. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. So Jesus declares once again his inseparable union with the Father. I hope that by the time we finish the study, at least the early chapters of John, you will see this thread running through all of the discourses. What thread? Jesus claimed to an inseparable union with the Father. He and the Father won. My teaching is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I did not send myself. My Father sent me. And that thread runs all throughout all these uh, controversies that Jesus has with the Jews. He makes a, a, a unique claim, or shall I say he makes a claim to an unique relationship with God which nobody else enjoys. And here he says once again, he strikes once again the note of his inseparable unity with the Father. Second thing he did, he lays down the condition to knowing truth. John 7, 17. He says, if any man wants to do his will. Now you see that first will there? Your Bible say if any man will do his will? Yeah, well, that first will would be better translated by the word want. If any man wants to do, if any man wants to do God's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. The basic requirement for learning God's truth is moral earnestness. The desire to know God and to do the truth, that's the basic requirement. Know the quality I look for in a student, uh, an applicant that's coming to Mid-South Bible College, this quality right here, moral earnestness, what I call moral earnestness. That is the, uh, the quality of being uh, dedicated to doing, submitting to God's will as it's revealed in the Word of God. If I come to the Bible 
with uh, an understanding that if I find out what God wants me to do and I don't like it, then God is never going to show me his truth and his will. The basic requirement for learning God's truth is the desire to know God himself and to do his truth, however unpleasant it may be. In fact, there are two great moral principles enunciated in this verse. And this is a tremendous passage. The first one is this, that a moral attitude of a person will affect his views of the teaching and character of Christ. May I say that again? The moral attitude of a person will affect his view of the teaching and the character of Christ. That's why a moral degenerate repudiates the teaching of Jesus. That's why Bertrand Russell didn't like the teaching of Jesus. He wouldn't. That's why Nietzsche didn't like the teaching of Jesus. The moral attitude of a person will affect his views of the teaching and character of Christ. I seldom do this, but I want to read something from Alva Hovey in his commentary on John, which I think is superb. I've quoted this in radio broadcast. Alva Hovey wrote on this passage, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the truth. Alva Hovey wrote, these words reveal a great spiritual law, namely that the moral attitude of a person will affect his view of the character and teaching of Christ. One who's prepared to obey the will of God from the heart will see the purity of Christ's character and the divine certainty of what he teaches. But one who is in spirit, thoroughly self-seeking, and unprepared to do the will of God will look upon Christ the Holy through the atmosphere of his own selfish character and will therefore hear his teaching without perceiving that it bears the unmistakable impress of heaven. It is the pure in heart who see God. What does that say? Blessed are the pure in heart, and they only. Blessed are the pure in heart, and they only, for they shall see God. It is the pure in heart who see God. It is the childlike to whom he reveals the things of his kingdom. A right will tends to just judgment and knowledge of the truth. A perverse will darkens the understanding and leads to error. Hence, an obedient spirit is indispensable in order to a proper estimate of the evidence on which divine truth rests, or by which it's commended to rational confidence. Now, what he's saying is simply this, that an unbeliever who comes uh, with his mind already made up, and with a disposition to sin, and a desire to enjoy his sin, and with his prejudices of wearing blinkers, will never appreciate the evidence for Christianity. Man that comes to the evidence for Christianity and has already prejudged the evidence is never going to see the truth and the beauty of the Christian faith. And that's the point he's taking. May I suggest there's another point here, and that is the desire to know and do God's will is a basic requirement for finding God's will. The desire to know and do God's will is a basic requirement for finding God's will. I speak, I suppose, at least once a year on uh, how to find God's will for your life. I don't pretend to be an expert on it. But I do believe that there are certain basic um, principles laid down in the Bible 
uh, regarding finding God's will. One of them, for example, is I must be born again. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I've got to be born again. Number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I have to be submissive to the Holy Spirit. Uh, number three, I'll, I must take one step at a time. God doesn't show me the whole blueprint. One step at a time, and so on. There are seven or eight principles that uh, uh, help us in finding God's will. Matter of fact, I wrote a little a track on finding God's will. One of them, critically important, is this one right here. And that is a moral earnestness to know and do God's will. If I don't, before I find it, if I don't have a willingness to follow through and do God's will, then I'm never going to have any confidence that this is the will of God, see. I'm praying about something. It's not given to me clearly in the Bible. It's not given to me clearly in the Bible. Maybe it's uh, the choice of a mate in life. Maybe it's the choice of a vocation in life. Maybe it's a choice of a church, a local church, that I, with which I want to uh, affiliate. Could be a hundred and one things. It's not clearly stated in the Bible. So I go to God and pray about it. I want God's will in this thing. But if I come with my mind already made up, or if I come with the idea that if God shows me something, I don't want that I have the, uh, I, I have the option of rejecting it then I will never find God's will. Moral earnestness, to do God's will, whatever it may cost, is a basic requirement for finding God's will. So Jesus said, if any man wants to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of my God or whether I speak of myself. What the Lord was saying, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You can't grasp the doctrine of God. That's understandable, because on your part, there's no desire to know and do the will of God. Therefore, it'll always be murky and dark for you until this issue is settled. Then he goes on in verse 18 to make a confirmation. He appeals to the motives that prompt this teaching. Verse 18, he that speaks of himself or from himself seeks his own glory, but he that seeks his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now, what did the Lord mean by that? Well, what he meant by that is that the man who speaks from himself, who is sent by himself, seeks his own glory. You watch out for a man that's only interested in making money or making fame. He's going to fudge on the truth. See, you never know whether he's telling you the truth or he's giving you some public relations term. Is he hedging the truth to get your approval? Jesus said, I don't seek man's approval. I'm not after your money. I'm not even after your praise. I don't seek any fame for myself. My motives are pure. I seek only God's glory. And if that's the case, then there is a presumption in favor of my speaking the truth. My motives are proper and right and pure. Then in verse 19, he gets to the heart of the problem. He peels back the husk and gets down to the real problem that was troubling him. 
They didn't want to bring it up, but he is. You know what it is? You know what it is? year and a half ago, 18 months ago, John chapter 5, he healed a man on the Sabbath day. He violated what was to them a most sacred thing. He had with impunity, he healed on the Sabbath day and did so right in the city of Jerusalem and right at a feast season, John chapter 5. He seemed to find uh, the time when everybody would be watching it, and it would be most obvious at feast season, and he healed the man on the Sabbath day, violated with impunity the thing that they held most sacred, that is the Sabbath. And for 18 months, that thing has rankled. It's got down and stuck in their claw. And that's the real problem. And Jesus brings it above surface. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you about to kill me? What Jesus meant there was, you men boast in the law. You're the ones to whom God gave the law. And you make your boast in the law, especially the Sabbath. And yet, at the very time you were boasting in the law, you're planning to violate it by killing me. You wouldn't violate the Sabbath but you have no conscience about killing me. And yet you claim to keep the law of Moses. Verse 20, the people answered and said, you're demon-possessed. Who goes about to kill me? Now this is probably uttered by people outside Jerusalem that were not alert to the plan of the Sanhedrin, John chapter 5, a year and a half ago, to kill Jesus. So they said, answered and said, now, you're demon-possessed. You've, um, uh, you've got a martyr complex. You're suffering from a martyr complex. Who's going about to kill you? Verse 21, Jesus has answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and you all marvel. Now, this is superb, the way Jesus answered here. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it's of Moses, but of the Father. And you on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Now, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I have made a man entirely well? Circumcision only gets him partially right with God. I've made a man entirely well on the Sabbath day. Now, what was the force of the argument that Jesus used here? Well, is based on the principle that a higher law takes precedence over a lower law. A higher law takes precedence over the lower law. Now, you know, that's true in life. Uh, for one of you men, a husband here, uh, was, your house was invaded by a murderer. And the murderer said, I'm going to murder your wife. Where is she? I'm going to murder her. And she were under the bed. And he says, do you know where she is? Now, what are you going to do? What? Well, I mean, you're not saying you have a gun, see? Huh? But assuming, assuming that you are faced with the alternative of telling a lie or maintaining a lie, you see, you've got, you've got two. You've got two laws there. They're in conflict. Whether to tell the lie, not to tell the lie, or 
to be an instrument by which somebody is killed and a life is taken. Now, in a case like that, a higher law takes precedence over a lower law. Now, what were the two laws? What were the two laws here? One was the Sabbath law. That was clearly given by God, the Sabbath law. But also, the law of circumcision was given. And the law of circumcision said that a male infant was to be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? What if the child were born on Saturday and the eighth day fell on the next Saturday? Here are two laws in conflict. Which one will you observe? The Sabbath law and circumcise them on the seventh or ninth day? Or will you observe the law of circumcision and circumcise them on the eighth day and violate the law of the Sabbath? Well, uh, the answer to that is already given. The Jews regularly circumcised a male infant on the eighth day and thus violated the Sabbath law. Now, if you're following me, you haven't got your mind over someplace else. You follow me here? See, here was the action they were already doing. They had already been operating on the principle that a higher law takes precedence over a lower law. The lower law was the Sabbath. The higher law, in their estimation, was circumcision. So when there's a conflict between the law of circumcision and the law of the Sabbath, they obeyed the law of circumcision and violated the law of the Sabbath. And thereby, said the law of circumcision, took precedence over the law of the Sabbath. Now, says Jesus, let's step that up one. Making a man well, making a man healthy and well, makes him whole. The law of circumcision only deals with part of the body. Making a man well makes him whole, entirely whole. And making a man entirely whole takes precedence over the law of circumcision, the law of charity, the law of love takes precedence over the law of circumcision. And the law of circumcision takes precedence over the law of the Sabbath. Therefore, since the law of love takes precedence over the law of circumcision, and the law of circumcision takes precedence over the law of the Sabbath, then the law of love takes precedence over the law of the Sabbath. And the argument of Jesus was unanswerable. They were silent. Now, you have to be careful about that, see? Because today in the 20th century, among some who are situational who believe in situational ethics, the law of love is the primary law. So if uh, an extramarital taste gives a man self-confidence, then the law of love says to him he ought to be able to engage in that, that situational ethics. No, we don't say that. But in this case, where it was an arbitrary law, see, the law of the Sabbath is an arbitrary law. God could have chosen any other day. The law of circumcision, arbitrary law. The law of telling truth is not arbitrary. That reflects the nature of God. The law of purity is not arbitrary. 
That reflects the nature of God. The law of the Sabbath is arbitrary. See, dispensationalism says that there are certain laws that stop and new laws that begin. What? Well, the Passover stopped and the Lord's Supper began. And one day it'll be ended. But those laws that reflect the nature of God never stop. They are true in every dispensation. The law of telling the truth. The law of not taking God's name in vain. The first uh, stage of this dialogue. Now we come to the second stage of the dialogue. That's verses 25 to 31. And the second, uh, second issue is the matter of his origin. Verses 25 to 31. This takes place at the same time. Verse 25. Then said some of the Jerusalemites. These are people who lived in Jerusalem. These are citizens of the city of Jerusalem. And they say, is this he, is not this he whom they seek to kill? For lo, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Now what they're saying is that, uh, is this Jesus the man that the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, are seeking to kill? Well, here he is in the temple speaking outright and boldly. How come, how come they're letting him do that? Why haven't they moved in? Well, perhaps, and they say it cynically, perhaps the rulers uh, no, indeed, that is perhaps the rulers now believe that this Jesus is the Christ. They said it cynically. They knew that they had Verse 27, nevertheless, we know this man from where he is. But when Christ comes, no man knows from where he is. Now, Jesus responds to that, 20, 29. Then Jesus cried in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know from where I am. Now, you'll get that clear if you add the word you think. You both think you know me, and you think you know from where I am. You have a knowledge of me, but it's only superficial. I am not come of myself. I'm not self-sent, but he that sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Now, there's a very short verse, verse 29, but there are three staggering claims in verse 29. And the verse is so short, we probably read it so often, we trip lightly over without realizing what Jesus said. He laid claim to three things in verse 29. What's the first claim he laid claim to? I know him. I know God. I know God. I know him absolutely. I know him fully. I know him with certainty. No mistake. I know God perfectly, with certainty, and with no mistake. Can you say you know God? Yes. But your idea of God is probably has a lot of mistaken notions connected with it. Most people do. And it won't be until we get to heaven that our idea of God will be entirely purified. Let me ask you a second question. You know God? You know him perfectly to the degree to which he can be known. Absolutely not. God is infinite. Nobody could know God infinitely. I won't know God infinitely even when I get to heaven. But Jesus did. He knew God infinitely. 
He knew God absolutely. He knew God was certain, and his knowledge was not mixed with any error. He knew God perfectly. You know, I was teaching yesterday on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I find that there are two ways in the history of the church of evading the doctrine of the Trinity. One is to say that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are subordinate to God the Father. They're not quite equal with God the Father. Now, that has a long history to it. Uh, today, it's called Unitarianism or Modernism. The Jesus or Jehovah's Witness. The Jesus and the Holy Spirit are subordinate in nature to God. That neither Jesus nor the Holy Spirit is equal to God the Father in nature and attributes and eternity. We don't opt for that one. Second one is that just, uh, you know, we have this illustration of the Trinity that I, as I am a son to my father and a husband to my wife and a father to my children, I'm one person, but I function in three ways. I function as a son, I function as a husband, and I function as a father. Or, to use it a little different way, I am a citizen of the United States. I'm a husband to my wife and a father to my children. I'm a family man, and I'm president of Mid-South Bible College. I am one person, but I function in three ways. I function as a citizen, as a family man, as president of Mid-South Bible College. One person functions in three ways. So there's the Trinity, isn't it? No, that's a terrible illustration. Terrible. And yet I would say that a whole lot of Christians drop into that. See, that's called, anciently it was called Sabellianism. Today it's called modalism. That illustration, those illustrations, deny the personality of the three persons. Or, you know, you hear this illustration that H2O, water, when it gets real cold, it's what? And when it warms up, it's water. And when it gets real hot, it's steam. So, so the Trinity. There's an illustration of the Trinity. That's a terrible illustration. Like electricity. One time it's heat, one time it's power, one time it's light. That's a terrible illustration. There are no illustrations of the Trinity. Don't try to illustrate it. But many people do. And I mean fundamental Bible-believing Christians. Why? Because their knowledge of God is permeated with mistaken ideas. Now, fortunately, we, we're not going to be saved. Only those who have perfect knowledge of God are going to be saved, should nobody be saved. But our knowledge of God is marked with some imperfect ideas, you see. So, basically, what we need to know about God, we do have. We have it in the Bible, we know it when we come to know Jesus Christ the Savior. But what I'm saying is this, the point I'm making is this, that Jesus laid claim to a knowledge of God that was infinite. He knew God in all the infinite recesses of God's being. He knew God perfectly. He knew God absolutely, and his knowledge of God was not mixed with any error whatsoever. I know God perfectly. What's his second claim? And, and the other two statements tell us why he knows God perfectly. Why does he know God perfectly? 
He came from God, and why? Why else? He was sent by, that's why he knows God perfectly. So here's the second claim. I came from God. That is the claim to heavenly origin. I came from God. I didn't start my life in my mother's womb. You do, Jesus said. You do, but not I. Long before I came to this earth, I lived in heaven. I lived there eternally. I came from God. And then third, God sent me. I'm not self-sent. I'm sent by God. Here are three claims of Jesus. Tremendous, staggering claims. Claim to divine knowledge. Claim to divine origin. And a claim to divine mission sent by God. I know God. I came from God. I was sent by God. Can anybody else say that? Well, he would be a lunatic if he did. See? No, nobody else can say that. Jesus said it. And said it with no ostentation. He didn't have any roll of the drums or playing of the trumpets when he said it. He said it quietly. He said it, how can I say it? He said it off the cuff. It came natural to him. And when I read it, it comes natural to me that he said it. I don't feel, if you said that, I would feel uncomfortable. I would feel uncomfortable. I know you were a liar or deluded. But when Jesus said it, I don't feel the least bit uncomfortable. I feel that he deserves it, that he's right, see. We tend to read these things. My friend, we've read the Bible so much, and we've heard it so much, we tend to read these things and hear them without appreciating the staggering quality of them. Here are three claims. I know God perfectly. I came from God, and I was sent by God. Then he goes on, verse, then verse 30 and 31, the reaction of the crowd. Then they stopped. Uh, here's a double reaction on the part of the Jewish leadership, verse 30. They sought to take him. But no man laid his hands on him. Why? His hour was not yet come. He was immortal for that hour. Nobody could lay his hands on him. Verse 31, the reaction of some of the people. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ comes, Will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? <clears throat> now, that was the faith in Jesus based on miracles, wasn't it? But Jesus accepted it. The faith based on miracles was a low faith, but Jesus accepted it. Was it a true saving faith? I have no way of knowing. Hopefully it was. Now we come to the third, the third issue. First issue was his, um, what was it? Teaching. Second issue was his origin. Now the third issue, his destiny, where he's going. 32 to 36. Here we've got a third group. The first group were the uh, verse uh, 14 and 15. 15, the Jews, the leadership. The second group were, was, the, um, was the Jerusalemites. Now here we got a third group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard the people... The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things. They didn't say it very loud because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership. So they murmured such things concerning Jesus. 
And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take Jesus. Now, uh, let's stop there just a minute. You need to get a good Bible dictionary to find out the distinction between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and find out what the Sanhedrin is and what the chief priests are. The Jewish ruling body, both religious and political, was the Sanhedrin. It's composed, when it was full, it was composed of 70, 72 men. And it was dominated primarily by the Sadducees. Uh, there were two groups, two religious groups in Israel, one with the Pharisees and the other Sadducees. The Pharisees uh, numbered, I think, five to 6,000. These were Orthodox, Orthodox Jews who dotted every I, crossed every T, but there was dead Orthodox. The people held the Pharisees in high regard. The other party was the elite, small party called the Sadducees. They were materialists. They didn't believe in the existence of the soul and the existence of angels. They were Sadducees. They were a small number, but very powerful in the land of Palestine because they controlled the political body, the Sanhedrin. And so the chief priests represent the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had certain policemen called officers. And they sent the officers to take Jesus. Verse 33, then said Jesus unto these officers who came to take him, yet a little while I am with you. Not now, verse 33. One day, verse 34, that's the substance of it. Not now, verse 33, but then, verse 34. Not now. Yet a little while, I'm with you. You can't take me now. Yeah, I'm going to be here a little longer. You can't touch me now. You can cry it, but you can't. You can't take me now. I'm still got a little while to go. And then I'm going to go unto him that sent me. Then you will seek me. You'll not find me. Why? Because you're going to be seeking for the Messiah in terms which you'll draw. You want the Messiah, but the kind of Messiah you want is not the biblical Messiah. And the Messiah you're going to seek for is that purely political Messiah, which I am not. Since you'll seek him in that way, you'll never find me. Where I am, there you cannot come. Where is he? Heaven, you can't come. Why? Well, look over John chapter 8. We'll anticipate ourselves. John 8, um, verse 21. John 8, 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. Why could they not come? Because they are going to die in their what? And there's no second chance after death. You'll die in your sins, your fate will be sealed, and you'll never be able to come where I am. Verse 24, I said therefore unto you, that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Back to John chapter 7, verse 34. You shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, there you cannot come. Now, that really confused them. See, that really confused them. You know, that's, um, 
that was the modus operandi of Jesus' action. He spoke to a man, where a man opened his heart to the truth and responded. Jesus would make it simpler and explain it to him and give him life and help him come to Christ. But when he spoke and a man resisted the truth, resisted it, resisted the truth, shut his heart against it, then the second time Jesus spoke, it was a little harder to understand. And the third time he spoke, it was even harder. See? That's a principle. That's a principle in the spiritual realm. That uh, when I sit in an audience like this one in church, and I respond to the truth, then my heart is melted a little more, and I see it a little more clearly. But when I resist the truth, my mind is darkened, and it becomes harder for me to understand which is to say, I can read Shakespeare and remain neutral. And I can read Plato and remain neutral. And I can read Robert Browning and remain neutral. But I can't read the Bible and remain neutral. I'm either going to move one way or the other. I want you to be stopping or drawing. It depends on my response. Out there in the parking lot. Out, you can see it out there, can't you? Out there in the parking lot. At 12 o'clock noon, I put two things. I put a 100-pound block of ice and 100 pounds of wet clay. It's noontime, July, the, the sun is beaten down. You know what it does to the ice? It melts it, melts it quickly. You know what it does to the wet clay? It hardens it. The same sun, but the response is different. So, two brothers sit in the audience. Two brothers reared in a Christian home. Two brothers, same environment, same circumstances, same genetical structure, same privileges. One of them ends up a devout believer. The other one ends up an agnostic. Why? Response to the will. Response to the heart, about which no one but God himself can do anything. Now, they say in verse 35 and 36, Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go that we shall not find him? What's he talking about? Will he go into the dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? They said that with cynicism and sarcasm. What manner of saying is this that he said, You shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, there you cannot come. They couldn't understand it. Now, what takes place between 36 and 37? Anybody tell me? About three days, right. Verse uh, 14 to 36 all takes place in the same day. It's a dialogue. John 7, 14 to 36 is a dialogue. What, what time does that dialogue take place? John 7, verse 14. Middle of the feast, about the fourth day of the feast, third, fourth day of the feast. Now in John chapter 7, verse 37, what day does it take place? That's the eighth day. And all from here on, the end of John chapter 8 takes place on the last day of the feast or perhaps another day, two days there. All right, now let's read John chapter 7, 37 to 39. Two things here. Here's the fourth 
point in our outline, the supreme appeal, John 7, 37 to 52. John 7, 37 to 52, the supreme appeal. We got two things, the appeal of Jesus to his listeners and their response. Now let's read this. First, the appeal of Jesus, John 7, 37 to 39. The last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture says, out of his heart, out of his word there is, uh, we get the word colitis from it. Colios, out of his belly, innermost being, to flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Holy Spirit, whom they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet. Now the given's not in the text, but it's a pretty good uh, interpretation. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. It wasn't Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet died and risen and gone to heaven until Jesus died and purchased our salvation. There was no salvation for the Holy Spirit to offer and apply. So Calvary had to take place before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit not yet given. Now, after he made this appeal, let's read 40 to 52. 40 to 52, we've got two things here. And their response, just as you have it in the outline. First, a divided opinion, 40 to 44. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying said, many of the multitude said, of a truth, this is the prophet, Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is that great prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. Secondly, verse 41, others said, no, this is the Christ, the promised Messiah. But third, some others said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes out of the seed of David? And David's town is Bethlehem, so therefore out of the town of Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2, where David was. But this man comes from Nazareth. He doesn't come from Bethlehem. He comes from Nazareth. So this man couldn't be the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Verse 43. So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them, probably Jerusalemites, wanted to take him, to seize him. But no man laid hands on him. Then 45 to 52, <clears throat> the response of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Then came the police officers to the chief priests and Pharisees who had sent them out there to get Jesus. The officers said unto him, Why have you not brought this man? And the officers answered a magnificent statement. Never man spake like this. I read a sermon one time, the strangest words that ever appeared on a police blotter. Here were the police officers. Never a man spake like this. We couldn't take him. His words were so powerful, we couldn't take him. Verse 47, then answered the Pharisees, are you all soon to see? You know, that's the easiest way to get rid of something. It's to, uh, you know, that's called the odd hominin argument. You know, when you listen to politicians, about 95% is what is called the odd hominin argument. You know what the odd hominin argument is? It's to the man. Odd hominin means against the man. You don't argue his, um, his political principles. You argue against the man. 
he uh, he came from a Georgia farm, or he did something to Chav uh, Chavaquiddick, or whatever it may be. That's the odd hominin argument. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm not entering into it. But that's the odd hominin argument. It's the argument against the man, instead of the argument against his political principles. Why not against his political principles? Well, because most of the time, they don't have them. <laughs> so you can't get at them. <laughs> that's why. They're very ambivalent there. Because they know if they got them clear on the front end, the voter's going to remind them down the line. So uh, they keep rather silent. So here's what they do. They do it against Jesus again and again. The odd hominin argument. Rather than looking at the evidence, rather than looking at the evidence, what do they say? You are what? You see, you tumbled for his line. That's a lot easier than to look at the evidence especially when you wear blinders, as these men did. Have any of the rulers, verse 48, or the Pharisees believed on? But this people, who knows not the law, are cursed. If you only were smarter and had studied the law, you wouldn't be taken in by this man. Which means if anybody is taken in by him, anybody believes in Jesus, does because he's an ignoramus. See? He doesn't know the law. He's an ignoramus. Anybody that's well taught wouldn't be taken in by it. But this people who knows not the law are cursed. Now, there was one man, a member of the Sanhedrin, who couldn't hold quiet any longer. He spoke up. Nicodemus saith unto him, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them. Now, he could have got up and said, well, I know Jesus. I, have, I met him, talked with him, I trusted him. But you see, he didn't approach it that way. Why? Not because he wasn't a coward. Because he knew if he approached it that way, he approached it that way, they'd all shouted him down. He approached it by citing to them a law which they themselves recognized and then allowed them to hang themselves on it. So he said in verse 51, does our law judge any man before it hears him? Well, does it? What kind of law judges a man before it hears him? What do you call that law? Frontier law? Judge Bean's law? What do you call that law? You know what I mean? You don't hear him? String him up before I hear him. Well, the Jews were careful. They had a long, substantial body of jurisprudence. And he appealed to a principle well known. Does our law judge any man before it hears him and knows what he does, and yet you haven't listened to this man, you're ready to kill him? He silenced them, verse 35. They hung themselves. They answered him and said to him, here's the odd hominin argument again. See, rather than answer the principle, they knew he was right. You know, whenever a man uses the odd hominin argument, you know his argument's weak. You know, uh, you know whenever I hear a man say, um, uh, this can be easily seen, I know it's not easily seen. You see, Anytime man has to tell you that. Or, you know, you hear a guy say, well, it's so obvious. You know it's not obvious at all. See, whenever he has to preface it by that. So they say to him, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look. For out of Galilee rises no prophet. Verse 53 goes with chapter 8. Entirely close to the truth. Entirely close to the truth. You know, I quoted here before that uh, statement of Bertrand Russell 
Van Asperken Russell was probably the most pronounced and celebrated atheist of the 20th century. He died at the age of about 94. Bertrand Russell was asked one time, Mr. Russell, would, uh, suppose when you die, you discover that there is a God, and you stand before him, and God asks you, Bertrand Russell, why did you not believe in me? What will you say? Bertrand Russell said to the man who asked him that question, I'll say to God, if I discover there is such a person, I will say to him, you never gave me enough evidence. But my friend, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. But now listen to me. A man will never see the evidence if he's looking in another direction. The man sees only what he wants to see. If a man wants to be unfaithful to his wife, I'll tell you something. He's going to find enough reasons to justify it. If a man wants to cheat on his income tax, he'll find enough reasons to justify it. If a man doesn't want to believe in God, he'll scrape around, and he'll have to scrape around, but he'll scrape around and dig up the old problem of evil and a couple of these and find some way to escape believing in God. He'll find some way. Man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. All right, let's look at 37 to 39, and then we'll be through. John chapter 7, 37 to 39. Here is a magnificent invitation of the Lord Jesus. I suppose every preacher has sometime in his life preached on this. If he hasn't, he's a poor preacher. Here's a magnificent appeal. John chapter 7, 37, 38, 39. I've outlined it. I've given you my sermon right there. Is that right? What's the first one? The sole requirement. Is that right? Here's the appeal of Jesus. Drink. Come unto me and drink. Have I given it to you there? What is the first one? The sole requirement. What is the sole requirement? If any man do what? Thirst. Thirst. What does that speak of? Well, I think thirst speaks of two things. <clears throat> it speaks, first of all, of a deep sense of sin. I'm conscious of the guilt of my sin. I'm conscious that my, my, my case is helpless, and hopeless, and I know that I stand before God a condemned and lost sinner. Nobody will be saved unless he has a sense of his own sinfulness. And the one reason we have such shallow conversions today is because there's such a shallow sense of sin. I think one of the lost notes in preaching today is the preaching on sin. And I'm not speaking about preaching against drinking whiskey and smoking. And I'm not talking about that at all. Not talking about what I'm talking about is the inherent sinfulness of the human heart with its bias against God. That inherent sinfulness of my human nature. Until I have a sense of my sinfulness, my awful guilt before God and the tyranny of sin. And secondly, I want to be saved from that. I'll never be saved. I want to be saved from hell and from the guilt of my sin, from eternal judgment. I want to be saved from myself. I want to be saved from my sinful habits. That's third. A sense of my sinfulness and a yearning desire to be saved from it. And until I have that, till I thirst, I will be saved. See, there are a lot of people that don't thirst. They think they thirst, but they don't thirst. You know, 
they thirst for, they want to come to Jesus and be happy. But that's not a sense of sin. They want to come to Jesus and be happy but keep their old sin. God doesn't operate that way. A sense of my sinfulness, my need to be saved, desire to be saved. Thirst of any man's thirst. That's the only requirement. That I confess is the old hymn by John Newton said, that I confess my need of him. Secondly, what's the second one? The indispensable one. What must I do? If any man come to me and drink, two things. Come to me, come to me, come to Jesus. Not to Mid-South Bible College. Not to the baptismal water. Not to church membership. But come to Christ and secondly do what? That means, well, you know we studied that in John 6, didn't we? Personally appropriate Christ. And that's what it means in verse 38. He that believeth, see, believeth.